Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking this evening in Judges chapter 3, and you can find it in your pew Bible on page 202. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hermon, as far as Labo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, as we would turn our attention this evening to your word, we ask, might it fall on fresh ears and fresh hearts that we might hear and see Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It was a few weeks back, perhaps I will butcher what was exactly said, but Pastor Joel was up here and he was using the theme, if you wanted, of the Reformation post-Tenebras Lux, or Lux, after darkness, light, and that was something that came out of the Reformation, and he was associating it a little bit with the book of Judges, and what he was saying is the theme of Judges, if you watch from Judges chapter one and, we, uh, 1 and we continue, it's really more in reverse. It's after light, after the good things that they have received from the Lord, what they recognize is darkness, and perhaps that feels weighty on you. That when you see the good things of God, you rebel against Him and you see the effects of our depravity. Yet tonight, you will see darkness, but I think what you see at the end of our passage is light. After darkness, light. Now, albeit it is temporary and it will fall right back into darkness, but I think it's important for us to recognize our sin doesn't get the last word. The Lord Jesus does, whether it's through the redemption of His people or it's through the condemnation of those who have failed to love him. 
And so what I want to do this evening is, yes, I'm sure you could imagine, based on the reading of our text, we must look at this first judge, Othniel. But I found it quite striking that if you look in verses 7 through 11, it's slightly difficult to understand what is actually being stated. How are we to put it in its context if you first don't understand these first six verses? Now, to be sure, it's a continuation of a series in which we just heard in chapter 2, where the people of God, Israel, has not been doing as they were told, and they had not been driving out enemies as they were told, and so they're experiencing a form of judgment upon them. But what I want you to do is uh, understand verse 1 is kind of creating a measured expectation. How should we begin to understand when the judges take their place? Verse 1 is creating that expectation. What is it suggesting for us? Well, it's saying that there is a test that is being attached to the people of God. God himself is testing Israel. That's the word. In fact, it's used. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars before or it before. Now, I want you to understand something. What you're going to read is those whom the Lord has left, these people groups that are a part of this test, these instruments of God that he's using, foreigners, to test the hearts of Israel. It's God's people, and he wants to test them. Will you be faithful? You understand it's, it's a test for Israel. It's not a test for the Lord. He's not providing a test, and so he can understand, I wonder where they really are. I wonder what's the account of their heart. No, he's testing them so that they see an objective truth. This is really the measure of my heart. This is really the depth of what I believe in my sin. And so what you get here is he says that they're going, he's going to test a particular group of people, those in Israel who did not know the war, and he's going to test them that they would know it. No, he's not saying he wants to test them so that they learn how to fight or how to conduct war. What he's saying is he's going to use war. He's going to use this test to help them understand. Do you understand the significance of this war? Now, to do that, you and I need a specific context. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read it for you. It comes from Moses, not the book of Moses, obviously, but it comes from Moses and Deuteronomy chapter 7, and this is what we read. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, that is the promised land, that is Canaan, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. 
but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. You hear it, don't you? When you enter this land, when you come into the promised land, you are to destroy Canaanites. You're to drive them out. They are to be nowhere to be found within the promised land. It is my charge to you, the people of God, drive them out and put them to complete destruction. Canaanites, well, they represent a test. That was God's charge to the people. And so any time the people of God show up and they meet a Canaanite, they have a test before them. How do you respond to these people? And so what verse 4 in Judges chapter 3 is saying is it is restating that purpose and it's trying to ask this question, Israel, are you going to be faithful in your obedience? Am I actually your God? And do you trust me? Or are you about your plans and about your desires? And you see what happens, don't you? Beginning in verse 5, you kind of get the report card. The results begin to come in. And verses 5 and 6 demonstrate something for you. And so tonight, I want to I help you understand this passage in two points. Our sin and the Lord's salvation. Our sin and the Lord's salvation. Look with me in verse 5 and 6 as we begin this report card. How has Israel done? So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. How does Israel sin? I want to show you their sin in three specific ways, and you'll see its ultimate expression when we get to verse 7 and 8. What is it that Israel does? It's, it's outlining sin as a, it's a downward spiral, and that's what it does. That's what it is. Sin is never meant to lead you to righteousness. It only takes you further into sin. It's why the scriptures say, make no provision of the flesh. You do not play with fire. And so what does Israel do? Did you see how Samuel says it in verse five? So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites. And then it goes on and on and on, the Hittites, the Amorites, and so on. Israel settles down. They set up shop with these people, these people groups. They're living in the midst of them. It's an entire contradiction of the charge that God gave them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, isn't it? Ironically, you're reading that list and you're saying those names sound very familiar. Minus the Girgashites, every one of those people show up in Deuteronomy chapter 7. What are you and I to make of it? It's because this is not a mistake. It's not as though they didn't have Zillow and they didn't know where they were supposed to live. You see, they began to migrate within the land and they just decided, we're going to set up shop with these people. Not just one group, but all of them. We're going to live among them. We're going to be like them. They accommodate to the world. And it shows itself 
and how much they integrate with them. It's as though what we're reading is everywhere Israel goes, they fail. They live in utter failure against what God has told them. But they don't just live among these people. You see, verse 5 continues to verse 6. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. Well, they intermarry. They've accommodated to the world. And now they begin to intermarry with the world. Now, perhaps you might want to just skip over this passage. I want you to understand how vitally important that verse is in this book alone. In fact, here are what you're going to read as we process through this book, this idea of intermarriage. Gideon, you've heard of Gideon. He's a judge. He marries, or he has a Shechemite concubine that gives him a son, The product of that concubine, that son, he looks and lives just like a Canaanite. You can read all about it in Judges 8 and 9. Gilead, he's another judge. He lives with the prostitute, which brings about a son, Jephthah. Do you know Jephthah? He's the one who has a daughter and sacrifices her to the other gods. And if that's not demonstrating what happens, then you have the worst expression, don't you, with Samson? who marries a Philistine, gets tired of her, and then goes to Delilah and loses it all. It's it's a big deal when God told his people, do not intermarry. He's saying it's not just simply that these two people, they have this feeling of love and they should just be allowed to be together. He's talking about a covenant that impacts the whole of your life. Not just that wedding day, but it's going to impact the rest of your life and even those who come from you. And so he tells his people, do not settle down with them and do not intermarry with them because then there's a final result, isn't it? They accommodate to the world. They marry the world. And then it doesn't surprise you that they begin to worship the world. That's what the end of verse 6 says. And they served their gods. They began to worship other gods. It's a violation of the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. I have brought you out of Egypt. I've brought you out of slavery. I have freed you. I have redeemed you. I am your God. Do not have any other gods before me. And they settle down. They marry into the world. And then they begin to worship the world. That's true for us too, you know. If we make our home in the world, we will marry this world. We will live for the desires and the cares of this world. And we too will fall into worship. And we will worship the things of this world. And then we pick up in verse seven. If it hasn't scared you enough, the downward spiraling of sin, what happens? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
they forgot Yahweh, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. It unleashes on us the depths of our depravity. That when we intermingle with the world, it demonstrates how dark our sin really is. That we begin to forget the Lord. They forgot the Lord. Now you, you know that Samuel's not saying they forgot him because they, they lacked information. They, they had no idea as to who he was. It's not that they didn't have information. It's what they did with the information that they had. They were told how to live and who to worship. They determined, but I see that over there. This God looks a lot more attractive. Or that activity seems a lot more believable. I'm going to give my time, my resources in my life to that. They forget their God and they fall into the downward spiral of sin, the utter depths of depravity, and they forget the Lord and they begin to worship other gods entirely. How easy it is to forget God. I wonder if that's where you are this night. How easy it is to forget Him and to forget the grace of God that has so manifested itself in your life and in my life. And I want to kind of personalize it a little bit more for us. How easy it is to forget God and His grace, especially in the Reformed tradition. We are not short on information. We do not lack the desire for truth. But does it have an effect on you? What do you do with that information? I think it was a couple weeks ago, maybe just one week ago, we were at Presbytery. I was highly convicted. A man was making a point. It wasn't actually even a sermon. He was just making a point. And at one point, I don't know all of what he was trying to say, but the, the, the part that got me is he looked out on all of us and he said, can I get a hallelujah? You know, we're people who like to say Amen. And he said, can I get a hallelujah? I'm very quick to want to provide an amen. I I want to give my intellectual assent to whatever this truth is. But am I willing to say, this is praiseworthy? This is powerful. This changes me. It has an effect on me. How lovely are you, O Lord? And as I'm thinking about it, actually, I think, when he made that comment, it was at the end of the doxology. And all I had was to say amen. How easy it is for us to forget God and his grace. Israel didn't just know God. They, they knew of him. They just did not seem to know him. What is he like It's one of my fears, you know, as a pastor and as a parent. I didn't grow up this way. 
I didn't grow up in a home trying to teach me over and over the beauty, the glory of the gospel. And so I get afraid at times. Do my children just come to church because I say they have to? You you know, there's going to be a test for them at one point. Perhaps it's at college when they go away. Mom and dad aren't there. Young people, do you come here because your parents say you have to? Is there something more in this place than just adults telling you what to do? There's a test. What do we do with the information that we have? Is it, is it simply tradition? Or is there something true that should change us? that should have an eternal effect on us. Israel's made these accommodations. They have lived among the people. They've intermarried with them. They began to worship their gods, and they have forgotten altogether Yahweh. And why have they forgotten him? You know, don't you? Because worship enslaves. We all know that It's you and I don't have a problem of worship. It's the object of our worship that perhaps is the problem. You were made to worship. You have been so designed by God Almighty that your life worships. It's just the question of who. And what worship does is it enslaves you. It enslaves me. It enslaves us either to sin or to righteousness. And they have so lived in sin, they're enslaved to it, and they have forgotten the one who has redeemed them. It's a small picture, what you're seeing in these first few verses of what happens every single day. When you open your eyes, Monday morning, you will be a worshiper. It's just the question of who. Will you be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness? You will worship but which one will it be? And you get this sense, don't you? It's so heavy. They sin and they sin and they sin. And when we pick up in verse eight, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim. We'll get to him. Do you see what they say in verse nine? But when the people of Israel cried out, they don't even wanna be saved. They're so far gone, they're not even asking for salvation to God. They're just asking for a salvation from their bad experiences. They have forgotten who God is. They don't even want to be saved. And that's a powerful truth that you and I have to wrestle with because it tells you why. You and I can't save ourselves. No one has ever so desired salvation on their own because it's outlining for us what sin really looks like in our life. Unless the Lord works, we perish in our sin. It's not a simple lack of ability. We lack the desire. We do not want God to save us unless he has first called us and regenerated us. And so then the obvious question is then, what does that deserve? And it's very honest, isn't it? In verse 8, the anger of God is kindled against them. 
They had chosen a foreign God, and now they have to serve a foreign king. God sold them into a foreign tyrant. They are under the master of someone else. We're not quite sure if this king's name is actually Kushan Rishathim because it seems to perhaps be a play on words. Mesopotamia is actually, it, it means two rivers. And Kushan Rishathim means two or double wickedness. And so many commentators are trying to say that the plight of Israel's sin has so led them in the, uh, or it has kindled the anger of God that he has sent them behind this man's ruler or this kingship. It's the worst of the worst. They have the worst conditions you can imagine because of how awful their sin has been. God was angry. And God sold them. Did you see that? It doesn't say that they were forgetting God and so they just desired for this man. It says that God sold them into it. He sold them. He's also the one who saved them. You see this picture of our sin, the darkness of it. Let me show you the light. Look in verse 9. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. These people who don't want to be saved, who are running as far as they can. The good news, the great news of the gospel is you can't outrun God's grace. He can't help himself but to save his own. And so it doesn't matter what you did this morning, last week, 10 years ago, or 10 years from now. If you are a child of the Most High God, you cannot help but be saved by Him. Yes, you might accrue some fatherly displeasure and discipline. And although you might not want Him, He will not let you go. He will seek you out and He will hunt you down. And he will bring you home because you are one of his own. And the beauty of it is you start to think, oh, these people, they're, they're starting to recognize how bad their sin is. And so they cry out, God, save me. I want to be your people again. There is no indication in the original language, which you're looking at in verse nine, there is no indication that these people are in fact repenting of their sins. It's the exact Hebrew language that shows up in Exodus chapter two when the people of God are being enslaved to Egypt and God hears them. And if you remember what happens in Exodus chapter two, God hears them and they're not saying we're sorry. They're not saying we want more of you. God hears them and the beautiful phrase, and he remembered his covenant and he brings them out. These people here They don't want God. They just want a different circumstance. They want a change of life and a change of scenery. But they don't want a changed master. They don't want God on the throne in their life. They still want to be that one. And so they're asking, I'm desperate. Please give me something different. 
And God does something so much better than give them a different circumstance, doesn't he? They're doing nothing right. And yet God blesses them. They have earned nothing. And yet God initiates to them. It's such a hard truth. Do you ever struggle with that? You got to clean yourself up. You got to correct a few things in your life. God will listen to you then. Maybe he'll love you more. Let this sink in. These people didn't want him. And he said, you can't escape me. You cannot clean yourself up to come to the Lord. He comes to you. He hears the cries of his people. The God who sold them is the God who saves them. Salvation is of the Lord. Many will note about this judge, Othniel. You know, it's a tragedy that you've probably never heard of him before. Although he does seem to be the most popular judge among uh, examinations of Presbyterian candidates. I'm not sure why. Maybe they've studied the passage. But when I ask, who are the judges that you know, you think of Gideon. And for some unknown reason, you think of Samson because it sounds like this good children's story. And yet Samson has a disastrous life. And you can't find one negative thing in this passage about Othniel. It's as though he's this paradigm for salvation. This is what it looks like for God to redeem and save his people. Here's Othniel. Because what you're about to witness as we continue on is it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Even in the judges. Just because a judge is raised up doesn't mean they have some great track record. It's not true. And yet here in Othniel, we get something interesting. You heard about him. Perhaps you remember him. Pastor Joel was preaching. Didn't make a whole lot of mention of him. But he, he spoke about him. Judges chapter 1, we get this description of him, verses 11 through 15. He's the one who is, well, he goes to fight. He goes to fight to win Aksa. That is the daughter of Caleb. Most believe that he is a brother, a younger brother to Caleb, whether it's biological, meaning uh, same parents or perhaps some different parents, no one seems to quite know, but there's some form of relationship there. And he is obviously much younger than Caleb. And yet he stands up to fight. He takes out Debir from the uh, Anakim. And you remember them, they are the giants who... uh, you know, made the people of God afraid that they didn't even get to enter into the promised land. But here comes Othniel. He'll fight for him. And he gets a daughter out of it. You see what's happening with Othniel. He's being, he's being grafted into Judah. The tribe by which Christ himself is connected to. Here's Othniel. It's not a perfect storm, you see. It's not the conditions were right and Othniel just got really excited and said, I'll I'll go. He's not some great soldier on his own. You have a sovereign Lord who is always at work and he raises up this judge. 
It's not because Othniel was a great man. There was a great one within him that begins to work. And I think what you're seeing here, the reason why it's a paradigm is because he looks nothing like what we just read in the first few verses. He's not intermarrying. He married into the Jewish family. He is one of them. He's not living amongst the other groups. He wants to be faithful to what God has called him to. And then you get that phrase, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, and the spirit of the Lord was upon him. The sovereign God, the king who has been disciplining his people is now prepared to deliver them. And we get a picture of what is to come. Othniel's showing you who is Jesus. What does Jesus look like? This spirit of the Lord that has come upon him. You can trace that phrase through the Old Testament and and where is it going to find itself? It's going to find itself in that great prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord, God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Maybe you didn't know that was Isaiah chapter 61. Maybe you heard that And you were reminded of Luke chapter four because that is when Jesus enters the temple, opens the scroll and reads that very verse. And do you remember what he says at the end? Today in your hearing has this been fulfilled. Here's this picture of Jesus in Othniel. The spirit of the Lord has fallen upon him but he's only a foretaste of what's gonna happen, of one to come, in which the spirit of the Lord will be upon his son and he will have it without measure. He will not need just one battle. He will take it all for himself. He will redeem his very own people. And then we learn, what's the result of Othniel going to war? The land gets rest. I do want you to hear me say that. The land gets rest, not the people. That phrase, the land gets rest, will repeat itself a few times and then you will in fact find out it stops because the downward spiral of sin continues in this book. And yet what I think is happening here is you're seeing what God is trying to say. Here I am, I've brought you out again. This rest that you're experiencing, you're looking out and you're seeing the benefits of my deliverance. Come to me. Come to me, my people. It's the kindness of the Lord that is meant to lead us to repentance. And so he's demonstrating in very physical form, look out. That which you have seen, that is war. You've been under this tyranny I have brought you out. You have rest in the land. Come to me, for I am your God. And yet if you don't, it's also a temporary picture of what will happen. It will lead you right back to unrest. It's not the quietness of the land that you so need. It's the quietness 
of me. It's my presence. It's my work. God is the one who's giving the true and lasting rest. You have to come to him. And did you see what happened right after that? It almost seems like an afterthought, doesn't it? The land has rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Othniel died. Just like everybody else. It's that refrain. You remember it, don't you, in Genesis chapter 5. You're getting this long genealogy. Here is so-and-so. He lived X number of years, and then he died. Here's so-and-so. He lived this many years, and then he died. And on and on and on. It's the fruit of the fall. Death comes to us all. It cannot be halted. Sin deserves death. And yet this refrain will end. Because there will be one who dies and who rises from the grave. And all who are united in him, they too will rise. Though you die, what does it say? You will live. You see this second Adam, I think it's Paul who says this. He is a life-giving spirit Yes, your sin and my sin, it deserves death, eternally so. But it is this last and final judge. His name is Jesus. He brings life to those who have come to him, who have died to themselves and yet counted themselves in Christ. They receive life. They will live. And so you're trying to figure out what do we do with this passage? I understand sin and I understand that it is the Lord's salvation. How do you respond? Isn't it simple? What do you do with grace? When you and I have rebelled over and over and over again, what do you do with grace? You look at it, you stare at it, you hold on to it, you do everything you can to get more of it. You behold it as often as you can because the grace of God changes everything. It changes everything. It brings those who are dead to life. And I want to encourage you with that. Because I just wonder if you've been honest with yourself. You ever asked the question, I just, I think I'm ready to give up. I'm ready to give up on God. I look to my right and to my left and it looks a whole lot more attractive, a whole lot more believable. And yet what God is saying here is, my grace is far better And it's more sufficient than anything you could find in this life. These people received it and they didn't even want it. Dr. Dale Ralph 
Davis, I appreciate what he says here about it. He's talking about the wrath of God, but I want you to hear what he says. He says, Yahweh's wrath is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in sin. He refuses to let go of his people. And he refuses to let us be comfortable in sin. You know what he calls it? He calls it the good bad news. Only he's allowed to say things like that. And what he's talking about is this. Yes, sin is bad news. And yet the Lord in his love and his mercy for you, he will use it to discipline you, to bring you right on back. He wants you to know how good he is. And so when you sin, when I sin and we experience discipline and displeasure, isn't it a mercy of God? Isn't it the good bad news that says, I don't want you to be comfortable there. Come to me. My grace, it changes everything. It overrules sin. It overrules selfishness. It overrules pride and pleasures and comforts. It overrules everything because it doesn't say jump up to me. No, Jesus jumped down to you and he entered into your place. How do you respond? You look and you long for the grace of God. And then lastly, you rest in his sovereignty Nobody was waving their hands saying, God, pick me, pick me. God worked all of these things according to his good pleasure and for the good of his people. Everything we do has a purpose. Of course, maybe it wasn't your purpose, but it was the Lord's and it was for his glory. We have a father, a sovereign God who uses all of our circumstances to demonstrate his care for his people. It should comfort us. It should humble us. And maybe you're thinking about that song that we sing sometimes. It's that last refrain. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler, yet this is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Swim in his grace and rest in his sovereignty. Let me pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the honesty of your word, revealing to us the glory of God and the darkness of sin, the destructiveness of it, what it deserves. It deserves your eternal wrath that we can kindle anger of God, bringing about judgment, discipline, displeasure, And yet, O Lord, we do pray this night that if there are those who hear and are seeing discipline, might they see the the heat of your jealous love 
and therefore recognize their God does not want them to be comfortable in sin. Come to Jesus, the one in whom the Spirit of the Lord rests upon in full measure, the final judge saying, I have taken death, I have defeated it, and I give life. And so help us, O Lord, not to try to control our circumstances, but to find comfort in our Christ who gives to us his very life that we might, in fact, have his. May we put our hope in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.